Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. And today, a double feature on overpopulation. So what better way to talk about overpopulation than trying to cram two stories into one podcast? Absolutely. It's a theme. And quite a theme it is. So the two stories we're going to be talking about today are, well, one by a very unknown author and one by a very well-known author. The first of these is The Tunnel Ahead by a woman by the name of Alice Glazer, who you've likely never heard of. The second being another very short story called To Be or Not To Be, and it's by Kurt Vonnegut, who I'm sure everyone has heard of because of Cat's Cradle, Slaughterhouse-Five, etc. So those are the two up for discussion. And so we'll what we'll do here is we'll we'll start off with Glazer and then we'll we'll slip into Vonnegut from there. But uh the 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 theme of population or well the the idea of overpopulation fits in with a lot of post-apocalyptic stories in the sci-fi world. It often connects with issues that would be obvious ones like resource management and and the human impact on climate and all that kind of stuff, but also on even just People becoming overwhelmed by the lack of space and and all of the all of the political nightmares that come from that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really interesting to me that overpopulation really is not represented all that much within you know literary circles and within you know movies and television shows. There's pieces of it, but like you said, it's put in this context of yeah, we're in a post-apocalyptic world, and one of the reasons we're here is because of overpopulation, but you know, the, the scenes and the time period aren't never really set during the time of overpopulation. It's really just a, a precursor to another story. So it's just kind of interesting that people don't want to either talk about the subject or set their stories in the time when it's actually happening. Yeah, and it's not one of those things, like you said, that, that has become a big part of what we think of as mainstream cinema, certainly. We'll make a couple of references before we're done to that kind of stuff. But you know, it, it's mostly dystopian fiction and dystopian cinema, and it's almost exclusively within the realm of science fiction for whatever reason. And not only that, but you got to figure that anybody who makes a movie about overpopulation has to pay for a lot of extras. So maybe that's why they don't do it. That's it. It's big budget. Well, maybe with CGI, we could we could do something like that a little more easily these days. You never know. Well, let's segue into the stories themselves. And, and like I said, we'll, we'll take them in the order of The Tunnel Ahead by Glazer and then into Vonnegut because it seems like a more logical progression here. So, Dan, set up The Tunnel Ahead just a little bit. Well, The, the Tunnel Ahead is basically a story at its heart about a family in, I'm pretty sure it's New York, going to the beach in New Jersey. Yep. And going through the well the future equivalent of the Hudson Tunnel and the Pulaski Skyway to get there. So along the way, you know, we get a lot of their reflections about about population and about the quality of their life. Like there there isn't a lot of narrative action. It's it's mostly internal dialogue and a little bit of dialogue between them that's that's all built on on the context around them. Yeah, there's this family. They're all traveling in a little car. Well, very little car as it turns out. There's Tom, who's the dad. There's Jeannie, who is the mom, who is also pregnant. There's David, their son, six years old. Uh, Patty and Susan, who are twins. And another daughter, Betsy. And all these people, as it turns out, are crammed into a very small car that is, uh, well, has a five-foot-long wheelbase. And you wonder, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting. Why are all these people crammed in this tiny, tiny little car? 
as the story unfolds, like we said, they're on their way home from the beach. And the tunnel ahead is that tunnel that we just made reference to. And they are in a traffic jam. Well, everything is always a traffic jam when they're on the highways. And they're making their way toward the tunnel. And we slowly begin to get a sense of what that means. Because the tunnel has real significance in the context of the society, the local politics and population and so on. But we'll get there. Right. So the story we have is set in the year 2106. The U.S. population is a billion. And it, uh, we start out with Tom, the father. You know, he's hunched in his little car and he's kind of thinking about the events of the day. He's you know, kind of going over in his head what happened. It was five hours to get to the beach. It was two hours waiting in line to get to the water. And then they got to tread in the water for a whole, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. I forget what the actual right. number was. Then they get back in the car and back on the highway. They travel 40 miles at 10 miles an hour, which you know probably is kind of like how it is in Jersey Turnpike sometimes. But anyway, the, the cars are jammed basically bumper to bumper. They're a foot apart, just kind of creeping you know, to and fro from the various destinations people are trying to get to. Everything as we are traveling, like I said, the, the internal dialogues and, and, and the, the little bit of dialogue between the characters shows us just how crammed everything is. So the vehicle itself is small. Tom is not a big human being. We, we learn at some point that he's only six feet tall, but the roof of the car is so low that his, his shoulders are hunched and he can't really sit up straight and he can't stand up in their apartment because the ceiling is so low. And it's all about conserving space. Every, everyone is supposed to live this very, very, very small contained life. Yep, and as a result of that small contained life, you're also supposed to not be an extrovert. You really need to be an introvert and kind of keep to yourself, and signs of extroversion are frowned upon. You can't be big and loud and gregarious, and people who are big are kind of frowned upon because they use up too many resources and they infringe too much on other people's space and rights to privacy and so on. Well, and because everybody recognizes that it's difficult to keep yourself physically contained like that for so long, as they get in the car, or shortly after they get in the car, and they're going to begin this five-hour trek back after this limited amount of, of physical activity of, of treading water for a few minutes in crowded lakefront or sea oceanfront, mom does the good mom thing and administers tranquilizers to all the kids before they really get too far on the road. And gives them a bunch of screens to watch. Yeah, see, that's right. Yeah, tranquilizers and, and basically the equivalent of personal screens like iPads or something like that where they can watch whatever it is that's going to shut them down and, and basically keep them from being bored on the, on the trip home or at least unproductively bored. And then a few other things are, you know, he tunes into the World Series and you're, of course, expecting baseball. And it turns out it's two guys hunched over a checkerboard playing checkers because there's just not enough space to have a baseball field anymore, apparently. This is the world that we are painting here, that everything is small, everything is contained, everything is, is not very expressive, um, and, and they are struggling with those things to an extent, but they, they also express like a lot of, like they, 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 have, they have become complacent, they have found their contentment with, with the system, even though it is not the most ideal, certainly not what we would think of as, as a, a life well lived. And all of this, really all it is, is setting the stage for the main feature of the story, which is the tunnel. And the tunnel, they keep talking about it in these sort of hushed tones. You don't really know what's going on. You get the idea that there's something about the tunnel. The, the wife's very apprehensive about it, and Tom keeps trying to reassure her. 
that, hey, we're just, you know, going through this on the way home. Well, we know that the, the tunnel averages, they get somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 10 closures a week. And we don't know what that means, just that there are 10 closures a week. And Jeannie at some point says, well, because their car comes to a stop and they wonder, oh, has the tunnel closed ahead? And she says, well, if the tunnel's closed now, that must mean that we'll have a better chance of getting through the tunnel without the tunnel closing. And Tom is saying, well, that really isn't the way that it works. It, it's just completely random and it could be you know, three stops in a row or no stops for three days or whatever the case may be. But we know that there is some significance to it closing, even if we aren't sure yet what it is. Yeah, it's almost set up as, oh, it's road construction, right? Up, oh, they're closing the tunnel. We need to go through the tunnel to get home. You know, it, it's, it's initially portrayed as kind of an innocuous thing. But as it turns out, it's not so innocuous after all. So they're on their way back. They're headed to the tunnel. They have to stop for a little bit. Um, someone has to go out and, and use the, the Chem John which there are apparently you know, a whole bunch of these little porta, futuristic porta-potties strung along the highways. And David, I think it was, the one who has to, has to get out to use it, and they're stopped anyway, so they're like, ah, that's all right. You know, we're not going anywhere anyway. And you know, Tom's in there. He, you know, while, while David's in the John, Tom's thinking about what it's like being a kid and uh, thinks about how in the 20th century people could be all wild and there were no crowds and lots of empty space. And that David, his son, who's you know showing signs of being an extrovert, is going to have to learn how to how to get along and how to live in this tiny, cramped world. Right. And and another thing that gets played out is, or you know, Tom is reflecting on his job, and so we learn that people don't have real jobs anymore. At least most people don't, because there are way too many people to have enough jobs that are productive jobs. So his job literally is to go to whatever office he goes to, and he copies numbers out of one ledger into another ledger checks to make sure that they're accurate, and that's his job, and he goes home. Yeah, so again, a lot of this sort of background description of what life is like in this extremely cramped and, and overpopulated society. As the story progresses, they do eventually get into the tunnel, and as they go in there, they, they become extremely anxious. We don't know why they're anxious. They're, there's something they fear about the tunnel, and they discuss it a little bit. Jeannie is saying she hates it, and there's got to be another way. Tom has a different opinion. He's like, nope, this is the only fair way to go. And we take our chances just like everybody else. Kids, of course, have no idea what's going on. They're, you know, sacked out, tranquilized, asleep, oblivious to all of this stuff. Yeah. And so the time in the tunnel is played out mostly with internal dialogue. You know, Tom is thinking about it. He says, oh, it's 8,500 feet long. Each car took up seven feet bumper to bumper, allow five feet between cars about 700 cars in the tunnel, then more than 3,000 people. It would take each car about 15 minutes to get through. So all of these calculations are going through in his head, and it's just a way of occupying himself while they get through. There's this momentary slowdown while they're in the tunnel, and they think, oh, no. And then the cars continue to move again. And just as their car clears the tunnel, the gate slams shut behind them, cutting them off from the car where they, they, they had been, like, you know, a family that they had made eye contact with, the Italians, uh, in, in a goofy little moment earlier on. That family is is cut off from their vision because the tunnel has closed behind them. Yeah, so they're in their car looking back at this closed door, and Tom starts thinking that it's going to be two minutes for the ceiling sprays to work. There's going to be 700 cars in the tunnel to be hauled out and emptied and how long it's going to take for the giant fans to get rid of the cyanide gas. 
And then he goes into a, a little mental discussion. They call it depopulation without discrimination. And apparently, you know, our elected officials have come up with this as a way to do population control. And they say no one would ever admit to voting for it, but almost everybody did. So we learned that this is how, indeed, we're doing population control. We, we randomly trap people in the Holland Tunnel, gas them to death, and then move along. Yeah, so somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 people a week, they just kill indiscriminately by random chance. Yeah, well, we assume it's random, but well, yeah, that's we part of a future discussion. That's that's true. Yeah, well, yeah, 3,000 people at a time who happen to get trapped in the tunnel. Of course, that means that they're people who are in their cars using the tunnel, which who knows what habits there are, but it's the mobile ones that we're taking out. Yeah, it's, it is kind of interesting. It, it is just people who have to commute, apparently, in and out to the city to that go through this particular, you know, sort of gruesome set of population controls. I mean, one could surmise there's others in play, but this is the one they talk about. This is what the story's about. Right. And and at the very end, you know, Tom, you know, there's the family's through the tunnel. Tom switches to his manual drive so he can get to their, you know, their tiny little compact house or apartment or whatever it is. And the story ends with Tom saying, so you want to go to the beach again next weekend, sweetie? And Jeannie replies, it's good for all of us to get out of the city and get a little fresh air once in a while. So they made it and therefore the incredible sense of relief. And then it's like, oh, yeah, back to normal. So presumably this is And we're going to do it again next week. Yeah. Yeah. So we we jump into this. Oh, there's tension going through the tunnel. And oh, there's fear and anxiety going through the tunnel. And oh, we only get to to tread water for 10 or 15 minutes before we have to get in the car and come home again. But, well, it's all there is to do, so we may as well do it again. And so, well, that's the first story. It's pretty short. It's pretty simple. The mechanisms for doing population control are pretty obvious and, and pretty well understood. They get a good idea of what the world is that they're living in. So before we get into a a bigger discussion, let's cover story number two, which is To Be or Not to Be by Kurt Vonnegut, which was first published in Worlds of If in January 1962. There was also a Canadian short film made in 2016 by the same name, by the way. So one of the biggest differences between the two stories is that where in, in Glazer's The Tunnel Ahead, we see people dealing with the burgeoning population. Like we said, what was it, one billion in the United States alone? In To Be or Not To Be, it's 200 years or 200 plus years into a time when they have engaged in population control in really, really extreme ways. And we're living with the, well, with the outcomes of that. So similar problem, different solutions, and and in a different world context that we are working with. Yeah, completely different. In this case, well... Actually, let, let's start out a little bit with um, yeah, the character introduction for To Be or Not To Be, which is we've got uh, a guy by the name of Edward K. Wheeling. He's going to be a father. We've got this painter who doesn't really have a name. He's just this kind of grumpy, curmudgeonly, sardonic old man, uh, a person by the name of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, who is the chief obstetrician, which is a kind of an odd title for this story. Uh, there's an orderly who shows up, comes and goes, and another girl by the name of Leora Duncan, who is introduced as a hostess, but we'll get to what that means. Right. And so as the story opens, in this particular case, 
Um, it, it actually opens with a sort of omniscient narration that I will read because it sets the stage better than we could just by talking about it. It says, everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered. So was old age. Death, barring accidents, was an adventure for volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls. So it's this hunky-dory, we've controlled population, and we've ended all of this strife. Yep. And just for uh, those people who wish to know, the current U.S. population is 332 million. So 40 million is a pretty significant reduction from where we are today. And the last time we were at 40 million people was way back in the 1870s. Yeah, so we have never known a world with that few people. At least, you know, those of us who are alive today, I should say. That is correct. So you have Wheeling. He's in the hospital, and he learns that his wife is having triplets. Uh, we learn that children, in general, being born is kind of a rare occurrence. And uh, Wheeling doesn't seem very happy about it. We don't really know why yet. He seems a little bit stressed. Of course, I guess most fathers having triplets would be kind of stressed, even in our world. But he's stressed for a very different reason. And we'll, we'll slowly learn what that is. And meanwhile, he's sitting in this waiting room where there's the, the painter, and he's hanging out on his ladder, and he is painting this mural called The Happy Garden of Life, which is this idyllic and idealized kind of representation of the world as we know it through the vision of Dr. Benjamin Hitz. And so Hitz is one of the characters that is front and center in this mural. And in the background, there's all these people who are doing things like trimming the lawn and pruning the bushes and carrying the, you know, the, the de detritus to the, to the burner and stuff like that. It, it's, a, it's a rather curious depiction of a garden, but at the same time, it's incredibly vividly, realistically detailed. Yep. This, this, even this orderly shows up and he sees the painting and compliments the painter. He's like, wow, this is super realistic. I'm, he's like, look at how well Dr. Hitz is represented. He's like super handsome. The painter, on the other hand, he kind of steps back. He looks at it. He says the mural's like, you know, he thinks it's nothing like real life. He, he gets really down on the painting. The orderly kind of says, well, you know, you're, you're kind of a gloomy Gus, Mr. Painter, and you should call this number. Apparently numbers are pretty short in the future. The number is 2B or 0. Well, it's 2BR02B, which happens to be the telephone number of the municipal gas chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination, which goes by a, a bunch of other names, but that's its official name. And essentially it's a place where if you don't like life, you can go kill yourself. Or someone will do it for you. And so one of those someones walks into the room, this woman named Leora Duncan, She's dressed all in purple, which for some reason has become like the color of the Federal Bureau of Termination, it, like purple, purple hat, purple trench coat, purple scrubs, the whole bit, purple shoes. It's funny. So she walks in and, and she is supposed to be posing for, for a painting, meaning that her face is going to be added to one of these faceless figures. And so she and the, and the painter go back and forth a little bit about where she's going to be in the painting. And, and then the Dr. Hits arrives, like the guy who it, it turns out is the architect for this whole way of looking at the world and this whole way of managing population. And one fun thing to note, the, the symbol of the Federal Bureau of Termination is an eagle perched on a turnstile, <laughs> yeah, that's right, <laughs> which is that. rather interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Leora shows up, you know, she's getting, she's going to be painted into this painting, uh, they talk a little bit about you know, where they're going to put her face. 
the the painter says, I'm going to put you right next to Dr. Hits. And Lior is just in awe thinking, oh, Dr. Hits, he's like, he's the guy who set up the first gas chamber in Chicago. He's the father of our, the society we live in. Besides uh, that, he looks so it, yummy. <laughs> and it turns out she's a, a hostess. And apparently in this world, a hostess, if you decide to call the number and go to the Federal Bureau of Termination, there's people to kind of help you on your way. And she is one of those people who make you comfortable while you die. Right. And and again, they make reference to to the, the Federal Bureau of Termination running gas chambers. So they, they set you up, they make you comfortable, and then pst, they, they, they release the gas and you're done. So... In the meantime, a Dr. Hits, our favorite person, arrives, and he's described as seven feet tall and boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. So <laughs> he's just like running into the room. He is a symbol of how great the world is, and he's the architect of it all, and he's just loving life, you know, so much that he barely even notices Wheeling's in the room. He starts talking to Leora, thanking her for her service, and, and tells her that, hey, this guy is here. He's having triplets. Uh, but then it turns out that no children can actually survive birth unless the parents of the child find someone else who's going to volunteer to die. And so far, they've only found one, even though the guy's going to have triplets. Currently, there's you know, there's you know one slot available and three babies on the way. Yeah, so this is when we learn why wheeling or whaling... Uh, what, whichever pronunciation for the name is most appropriate, we learn why he is just sort of hanging out here and, and being quiet. And and we also learn that the one person that they have found who is willing to give up their spot on planet Earth so that these triplets can come into the world is, is Wheeling's grandfather. And he doesn't really want his grandfather to have to die so that his son or daughter or sons and daughters can be born. Um, so he's not really all that happy about the whole arrangement. And again, they've only got one, which means that the other thing that he faces right now is he has to decide which of his three children is going to live and which of the two are going to have to die. And also compounded by the fact that as he makes this selection, he has to also kill his grandfather and essentially walk out with what he calls a receipt because this is just how things are done. And he's he's pretty down on the whole idea. Well, Hits, of course, who really loves the whole idea, starts questioning Wheeling about population control. And he says, hey, it used to be the Earth had 20 billion people and there was nothing to eat but seaweed and there wasn't enough water to drink. But yet, even in a world that was just, you know, where things were terrible, people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits and their right, if possible, to live forever. So they instituted this practice, zero population growth. Uh, ruthlessly rigorously enforced rigorously enforced there you go and that solved all of those problems obviously it, it created more or it created different kinds of problems but as hit says it, it resulted in a happy roomy clean rich planet where centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as far as the imagination cares to travel and then wheeling in a slightly unexpected twist of events, pulls out a revolver and shoots hits in the head, <laughs> kills Leora, and then kills himself all right in front of this painter. And doing the math, we now know that, hey, all three children can now live. And the painter, he just kind of survives as this witness to the whole incident. And this, this you know, the painter wasn't already in a very good mood, as you might recall. He is even less in a good mood now ever after watching this whole scene play out. 
he finds himself in this rather dark state of mind where he walks over to Wailing, he picks up the pistol, and he contemplates ending his own life. Uh, but it, he he doesn't have the guts to do it. Like he he can't pull the trigger. And earlier in this story, he had made reference to you know he's not going to you know call the number the to be or not to be number. He'll just do it himself. And they and they talk about it you know him being um, wrong or or disrespectful of others because he's willing to be a do it yourselfer and commit suicide. You know because people are going to have to clean up after him and and so on. Well, all of these thoughts go running through his head and. He picks up the phone or a phone and he calls the number and he schedules a time for his own suicide execution, whatever it is that you want to call it. And the whole story ends uh, with this, well, with, with his conversation. So the, the woman who answers the phone, the Federal Bureau of Termination said a very warm voice of a hostess. The painter says, how soon could I get an appointment? We could probably fit you in late this afternoon, sir, she said. It might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter, fit me in, if you please. And he gave her his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you, your country thanks you, your planet thanks you. But the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. The end. Not dark in the least. No. Of course, Vonnegut was kind of known as writing some dark stuff, so no surprise that that this story is from him. Right, so there's, even though these stories are short, Obviously, population control or or population in general is a, is a big issue. You know, we had an earlier episode where we talked about the marching morons, where a different kind of population problem presents itself, and and the ruthless way in which it is dealt with in the context of that story. And so, there's a bit of a theme that emerges here in science fiction. Again, population becomes one of the causes of apocalyptic events. Or becomes one of the apocalyptic events that 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 you know finds its way into stories, and there are a variety of ways of dealing with them or with it, but it always seems to be rather bleak, and it's understandable to an extent. But we never see a lot of responsible action; we see a lot of extreme solutions. You know, looking at Vonnegut's story, right? He's very much on the human aspect of of you've got a bunch of people. You know, you've you've, you've basically got the dichotomy where where people want to expand indefinitely in a world of, of finite resources and really comes to the conclusion that there's just no good answer to the problem. Do you let people you know, breed like crazy and destroy their world? Or do you impose some type of draconian state-mandated population control? Well, it's interesting that in the, in the Vonnegut story in particular, the population is set so low, as you, as you pointed out. You know, currently we are, what would you say, around 350 million? 332. There you go. And and in the story, the, the population of the United States is capped at 40 million people. So that seems like a pretty extreme difference. And yet it's obvious that they're talking about not just not putting a burden on the resources, but making them really easy to manage, making them plentiful so that we don't have to think about not having. We only have to think about managing ourselves and, and sustaining our own population at this magic number of 40 million. Yeah, as opposed to the first story where the population was a billion, which, you know, believe it or not, doesn't sound, it sounds really big, but it's really, if you look at the land area of the U.S., that's like, you know, one, two acres for every person, you know, which kind of is at odds with how the story is represented with people stacked up like cordwood in these buildings that are, you know, hunched over because the ceilings are six feet high. But, you know, uh, even a billion is, is, you know, pretty reasonable in a land area the size of the U.S. 
of course, you know, it's not all habitable. Yes, I understand. We cram people in cities and there's places you can't live and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, when you look at the at the nations on the planet that are at or around a billion people, you know, like China and India, for example, you know, China has enormous cities and, and, and very, very populated cities and so on, but they are you know, what we would think of as, as just, you know, everyday cities, you know, where they aren't cramped for space in terms of low ceilings and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a sense that there isn't a lot of space to go around and that, you know, apartments or houses might be smaller than what we are accustomed to in the United States, of course, but people have been living under those conditions for rather a long time. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and again, we're not here to quibble about the actual math of overpopulation right. and how many people it would take to come up with one of these stories. So, you know, what population density of the various nations is, you know, not really not the focus of discussion here. You know, what what we do see, interestingly enough, the way I see these stories being related is that they both have these methods of population control that are somehow seen as, you know, very egalitarian, very fair especially in the tunnel, right? It's almost like Russian roulette. Anybody who goes in the tunnel has a chance of not coming out, right? And it's assumed that the entire population of the, you know, of at least New York, I would assume it's replicated other places, that everybody's got a chance at, at going into the tunnel and not coming out, which of course is kind of a, I mean, Glazer's story was 1961. It's a pretty, you know, knowing what we know about human nature, it's pretty unrealistic to think that Oh, you know, certain men or certain women or politicians of means and connections could jury rig the system and know when the tunnel is going to open and close and somehow keep them and their friends out of it. The, the whole human element of, of influencing population control is completely absent, at least in Glazier's story. And it's really sort of absent in Vonnegut's story because... Their society presumes there is some form of tracking that people aren't out in the country somewhere having a bunch of babies that we can't find. And in a population of 40 billion in an area the size of the U.S., I can certainly see there being issues with trying to keep track of who's reproducing and you know who's not and not actually you know anteing up some people to take the place of the people that are getting born. So kind of a naivete as a threat in these stories that there's the, some type of technological arbiter of fairness that's going to decide who lives and who dies. Well, and you see, uh, so you, you just called attention, by the way, to um, Glazer's story being being published in 1961, and uh, remind us that um, Vonnegut's story was published in 1962. There's there's no implication whatsoever that the two, well, or that that I guess Vonnegut having published after her, you know, that his story was influenced by hers or anything else. It's more, uh, we'll take it more as an implication that people are thinking about this stuff and talking about this kind of stuff. And, and you know, it, it finds its way into a variety of stories in the science fiction universe. Yeah, I mean, when was that? I mean, I know that you had mentioned the Paul Ehrlich uh, population books in the, the Marching Moron story. Do you remember when those were actually published? Uh, was that on or around the early '60s? The population, ex I mean, the population bomb was was in the '60s. The population explosion was not until the '80s when he was revisiting it. And then um, there are a couple more recent ones that just suggest that it, it continues to go. Like Stephen Emmett has a book called Ten Billion, and Danny Dorling had a book called Population Ten Billion. Those are both within the last few years. I, I should have written down the dates, but I didn't. So this is like a, an ongoing, periodic kind of focus for our society. 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if you actually look at the literature on overpopulation, there were even people as early as the second century AD oh, yeah. talking about overpopulation. So it, it, this is absolutely by no means a new conversation. Well, and interesting that you bring up the that sense of control in Vonnegut's story that people are monitoring. Because one of the ones that, uh, you know, one of the stories, I should say, that, that just popped up in, in recent years, um, very recently, um, uh, was the, the name of the, the film, Oh, What Happened to Monday? Where here you've got a, a, a situation where multiple births have become common, but they're also practicing some sort of a zero population control kind of thing. Like people can only have so many children and the family or the 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 people who become the, the the main characters in the story there are seven siblings who were born through multiple birth and they are they are cared for by their grandfather who chooses to hide them and they adopt one persona so that they can maintain this fiction throughout their life that they are only one person but there are really seven of them living in this apartment in this city so you know there's there's uh, you know, people now looking at this kind of kind of problem, this kind of challenge, and saying, "Well, what if people tried to game the system or tried to hide from the system? What would that look like?" And there's one possibility. Yep. And again, you know, just like to be or not to be, you assume this very contained society where everybody is very closely tracked and monitored. There's it's almost invariably always set in these mega cities, right? There's no concept of you know, rural America or countryside or someplace that happens to be not under the watchful eye of whoever is controlling all these societies. So you know, in that respect, it seems that they're really ignoring a lot of what would probably actually happen in a world like this. That reminds me, there's a movie that I remember seeing, and I am not going to be able to come up with a name for it at all. It was a while back. People were crammed into cities. The world was overpopulated, and they were crammed into the cities because all of the arable land on the planet was maintained by giant corporate farms that were run by robots, and they were churning out food, and that's all they did is they used all of the land that they could to churn out food to feed all the people who were in the cities, and so it was this very stark difference between urban and, and rural life because there basically wasn't any rural life at that point. And I can't think of the name of the movie that was that, that that posed that reality. Yeah, that does not sound familiar to me. I don't believe I've seen that one. So there's a vague reference for you, fans. <laughs> if you know what the movie is, let us know. So as we said earlier, there's some various media that refer to overpopulation and talk about it. Uh, you know, as we just mentioned, we've got. What happened to Monday? I mean, you can go back to Soylent Green, which was based oh, yeah. on Harry Harrison's, you know, Bake Room, Make Room from 1966. Stand on Zanzibar. You know, if you look at the Asimov's Caves of Steel novels, right, where Earth is just incredibly overpopulated. Uh, you know, so we do see this in literature, but not as often as I would think, given its very obvious idea as a plot device. And maybe it's just because our society is is not comfortable talking about overpopulation. Our society is certainly not comfortable talking about population control in any way, shape, or form. So it's maybe not surprising people steer away from this. And I would say one of the most recent 
places that I saw it, other than seeing the movie What Happened to Monday, in in major mainstream cinema, we had Avengers: Infinity War and Endgame, the the the, the duo of films where this alien um, named Thanos acquires the ability through these uh, mystical gems of being able to snap his fingers and with a finger snap eliminate literally one half of the universe's population. And he says it's for our own good. It's because of overpopulation. But in a weird sort of way, as big a plot device as that is, and as huge an impact as it has on the universe, and, and the second movie is all about them trying to set life back to the way it should have been, it's almost glossed over as a as a comment on population. Like people weren't talking about that after the film. They were just talking about Thanos being this evil dude who kills half the population of the universe. They really weren't examining or really looking at his motivations for it. Yeah, and I also think you had mentioned the the movie Inferno where they talk about uh, releasing the plague to reduce the human population. Yeah. Which, which also ties in with, you know, if anybody thinks back to season three of the original Star Trek, The Mark of Gideon, that's exactly what, what they did in that show where Kirk had the virus and they were trying to get it to somehow reduce the population of the planet. You know, not, not, a, great, uh, not a great episode by, by most fans' reckoning, but hey, it, it, you know, for 1960-ish discussions, it was still pretty radical. Yeah, so we've got... This notion that... And don't get me started on Logan's run. <laughs> we should probably throw that out there. Right. Well, and actually, I was going to say, the other way that we often see um, population showing up, or, or at least I should say with the, the way that resources get used by big populations is in a story like, um, oh, the, the short story that was turned into a short film in the in the... What's what's the the Netflix series that's Love, Death, and Robots? Oh, that is what the series is, is Love, Death, and Robots. So the one called The Swarm, where you've got these people who are farmers on a planet, and periodically this swarm comes through this some sort of a temporal portal from another, you know, from another world. And these creatures that are very much like giant alien locusts come through and and they're, you know, the the presumption is that they're a lot like giant locusts. And they just consume as they go. And there are races of things that do nothing but consume resources all through science fiction. But they're always seen as a threat. And they're not often seen as a parallel to the human race. They're often seen as the foil to the human race. Oh, these resource mongers, we've got to combat them and protect our resources from them. We don't usually flip it around to be, well, guess what? We are the locusts. Reminds me of a very short story I read a long time ago um, called, uh, I think it was the, the Host or the Parasite. And it was all about how this parasite was living on this body and had used up all the resources and eventually you know, succumbs to the fact that all the resources have been used up. And of course, the story ends with, and so the last man on earth was dead. Can't even remember where I found that story, but... That's a long time ago. Reminds me of the days when we were um, actually around the time that Paul Ehrlich was coming to Michigan Tech that I made reference to in that earlier episode uh, where we talked about the marching morons, um, where he was talking about the population explosion. Well, it was also during a time where there was a lot of discussion of the Gaia hypothesis and of the Earth having the possibility of, of like self-regulating systems to control things like population and so on. 
That is a deep well of conversation that we don't necessarily need to step into. But what I did want to bring up is that the one of the scholars of the time referred to human beings as ambulatory weeds. And I always liked that at some level. Uh, yes, at some, at some level, we are just large, unpredictable apes. At least that's what our pets think. That's right. From the world of cats, that is all we are. Well... This is one of those episodes where we could go in so many different directions that it's actually a little bit overwhelming to think about the the possibilities and the implications for things. But I think in some ways, it's kind of enough to say that we like to visit this kind of possibility or this kind of conversation in science fiction. We've played out all kinds of possibilities or mentioned all kinds of places where it shows up. And I have a feeling that this is a topic that will come back up again. I mean, this is already the second episode where we're dealing with something that deals with population control. So this is this is one that keeps coming back for more, whether or not we want it to. Yeah, rather than cover our normal, you know, dated out-of-place elements, I don't think either of the stories really has a whole lot to talk about no. in that respect. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, on the scale, the hmm, whoa... What the fuck, if those really apply in this situation? I think both of them are at least a little bit of hmm and whoa. So, I suppose you could look at these solutions for population control as having a representation of what the fuck. You know, they, like, you yeah, know, they, they went there. Oh, what the fuck? But at the same time, yeah, you're right. I, I think that these are they're stories that are that are meant to make us think. They're meant to to make us, you know, reflect, or maybe meant to make us happy that we aren't in these kinds of realities but they really aren't challenging us outright to think about the implications of our, like, are, are we going to be part of population control? Are we going to be part of, you know, making the argument that these like kinds of things that the current practices should change, so that we don't find ourselves in these situations. People are reluctant to challenge us to action over issues like reproduction. Well, as you pointed out a while ago, the, the people and the governments who look at population control are almost invariably portrayed as the villains. Yes, right? absolutely. You know, they're, they're, they're people who want to control things. And even if they're supposedly doing it for a, a better good there, it, it's almost always portrayed as a quote unquote bad thing. Right. And so there's there's that, that, that very resistant, very you know, independent, almost anarchistic impulse that gets generated, especially within Americans that I know. Anytime that people start talking about, well, maybe we should limit the number of kids that we have. Well, no, the people have a lot of different reasons for believing that they have the right and and probably more so the responsibility to, to crank out as many kids as they possibly can. Yeah, and you have to wonder, of course, you know, a lot of the arguments from these people are, oh, they're going to be a, a scholar, they're going to be a scientist, they're going to be an artist. If we don't have these kids, you know, we're going to lose something. But, of they course, never the think flip that their side kid's is, gonna hey, be a leech. yeah, they're never going to become, a, you know, another mass murderer, or they're not going to become, you know, strung up, you know, strung out on welfare, or work in a meth lab in somewhere in southwestern Kentucky or something, you know? Not to pick on people from Kentucky, I'm just right. using it as a state. So it's, I don't know if that's just the preponderance of humans to gloss over the bad and focus on the good and assume everything's going to work out for the best, no matter what we do, but that, that could certainly be a contributing factor in the conversation. I suppose we could bring religion into the mix too, but that would make this episode about four more hours long. <laughs> 
Right. Well, I was just going to say that in the context of, of dealing with the disruptions to the supply chain in the wake of the pandemic, you know, I was just in the grocery store yesterday noting that there are huge sections of shelves that are still bare. And I have a granddaughter who is, you know, coming up on eight months here as we're recording this episode. And one of the things that, that there's a shortage of it in the United States is, is baby formula and it, it's catastrophically low. So, and this is when we're at a place where we don't think of our population as being a burden necessarily on the planet yet to the level that they're fearing in these science fiction stories but all it takes is one good or one really bad, I suppose, disruption. And suddenly we see it's not as easy to get our hands on the resources that we're used to because of the mechanisms that we're used to acquiring them through. And as soon as that system gets disrupted, it doesn't take that many people to cause a, a lack or a, a reduction in what's available to us. So, so there are some scary realities. Remember the great toilet paper shortage from oh, a yes. few years ago? Absolutely. <laughs> What a what a silly thing, and yet what a what a horrible thing to be trying to deal with, you know, trying to figure out. Oh, how are we going to manage bodily functions in a world? Where... How am I going to write my next great novel? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's even a run on novelty toilet paper then. Uh, well, I think we've digressed sufficiently to put an end to this particular episode and make the population of podcasts about overpopulation <laughs> one less. That's right. So moving forward, I, I think we're going to be talking about a somewhat different story where, well, it's, I don't know if you consider it post-apocalyptic, but it's certainly not a, it's civilization ending in a way, but it, it I don't know how to describe this one, Bill. Are you talking about Encased in Ancient Rind? By Mr. Lafferty? That is indeed the one. Yeah, it's a curious tale. Yeah, I, 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 I had never read it, and I'm intrigued by our, by what the, what the conversation will bring. There's a teaser for you, people. But just because we aren't sure how to tease it properly here, you want to come back for that episode all the same because it really is a good story and well worth the conversation and well worth the time. <laughs> <laughs>